Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The railroads around Chicago were in chaos. Workers for the Pullman Palace Car Company had gone on strike after the company's owner had cut their wages, but not their rents. In sympathy, other railway workers refused to handle any Pullman train cars. Federal troops were sent to try and get the railways moving again. But the striking workers rioted, and the troops shot at the crowd, killing some of the strikers. President Grover Cleveland, fearing a backlash from working-class voters, offered an olive branch. Many states already had a holiday that celebrated working Americans. He signed a bill creating a federal one, and since 1894, Labor Day has both marked the end of summer and the toil of the American working class. Joe Biden is a more avowedly pro-worker president than most, but like his predecessor, Grover Cleveland, he has a problem with working-class voters. I'm John Prideaux, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can Democrats win back working-class voters? Joe Biden likes to boast that he's the most pro-union president in American history. His fondness for unions, though, has been tested by a wave of strikes. In office, President Biden has regularly voiced support for workers and handed unions more power. But white working-class Americans, once his party's reliable base, now mostly vote Republican. Can Democrats ever solve their working-class problem? With me this week to talk about unions and the Democratic Party's relationship with the working class and what it might do to win back more working class voters are Idris Kaloon coming to us today from Los Angeles and Charlotte Howard, who's on her usual perch in New York. Idris, what's going on in LA and how are you? I'm very well. I'm in LA basically in transit. I'm going on a long holiday to Japan, which I'm extremely excited for. So yeah, just uh, recording this and then I'm out the door. Well, that sounds good. I'm very envious of the Japan holiday. You'll have to tell us about it when you get back. And Charlotte, how are you? New York is great. We have our editor-in-chief in town and our CEO in town, and everyone's here, so it's been a busy week. And next week will be even busier with the UN General Assembly. But New York is all a buzz. Well, that all sounds good. Before we go any further in this week's episode, we have an announcement to make. We're launching a new podcast subscription, Economist Podcasts Plus, in mid-October. Until then, all the episodes will be free as normal. But from mid-October to continue enjoying all the episodes of Checks and Balance every week, as well as our other weekly podcasts and exclusive new podcast series, you'll need to become a subscriber to Economist Podcasts Plus. We're doing this because we put a lot of work into our podcasts, whether it's Checks and Balance, our colleagues in Beijing and Taipei reporting on China, our series on Russia and Ukraine next year in Moscow. And we think these podcasts have value and we want to be able to make many more ambitious new podcasts. So from mid-October to listen to all our shows, you'll need a podcast subscription, which will also get you new podcasts, including a new weekend edition of The Intelligence exclusively for subscribers and a new series on management from our most popular columnist. That's called Boss Class. I've heard the first few episodes, and it's really good. 
If you're already a subscriber to The Economist, then thank you. You'll have full access to all our shows as part of your subscription. If you're not already a subscriber, you'll need to get Economist Podcasts Plus. If you sign up for Economist Podcasts Plus before October 17th, you can take advantage of a special discounted rate, a year-long subscription for $24.50 or £24.50 or €24.50 for the whole year, which works out to about $2 a month. To sign up for that, go to economist.com slash podcasts plus, or you can look at our show notes for this episode for more information. All right, let's get into the show. We thought this week would be a really good week to talk about unions and to talk about the working class because the UAW, the big auto workers union, may be on strike by the time you hear this. We're recording on Thursday. Their contract expires at midnight. We're expecting a strike to start on Friday. And just also another note, which is that Stellantis, which is one of the big auto manufacturers which is involved in this negotiation and possible strike from the UAW, Stellantis has a connection to The Economist through Exor. So Exor is the biggest shareholder in Stellantis and is also the biggest shareholder in The Economist. So we're independent, but I just wanted to mention that connection just to be transparent. Our US economics editor, Simon Rabinovich, has been thinking about what the raft of industrial action means for the relationship between the Biden administration and unions. We chatted earlier this week, and I began by asking him what evidence there is to back up Joe Biden's claim to be the most pro-union president in American history. Well, I guess there's evidence both in terms of rhetoric and in terms of policy action. So first, the background is that there have not been very pro-union presidents for decades in America. So you could argue that it's a fairly low bar for him to clear. I mean, certainly Republican presidents have not been pro-union. Bill Clinton wasn't really pro-union. If you look at his support for free trade, that was something that many in the union movement, in fact, objected to. Barack Obama kind of tilted a bit more towards unions, but you know, even he, if you look at like the big bailout for the auto companies and the deal that the auto workers had to accept to basically keep their companies afloat, it wasn't exactly union-friendly either. So it's a low bar. Then in terms of spoken word, I mean, it is important that he's come out on the stumps again and again and again saying how much he likes unions, the number of events that he's held with union people, having labor organizers coming to the White House, you know, using the bully pulpit of the presidency to say that you're a big backer of unions, that union jobs are good jobs, that you're a supporter. That is actually important. That helps to influence the overall environment. And then substantively on the policy side, the administration has actually done quite a bit of pro-union things. The National Labor Relations Board, they've now appointed the majority of the board members under their leadership. The NLRB has become you know, very staunchly pro-union, has rolled back a lot of what Trump had done that had made it very difficult for unions to organize, has not just gone back to the pre-Trump era, but has you know, even turned the clock back 50, 60 years in terms of facilitating union elections, saying that companies that aren't actually you know, recognizing unions, that's much more problematic, giving unions more clout to fight back against them, as well as a lot of the funding legislation that they've introduced, the CHIPS Act, the IRA. There have been bits and pieces written into them that really are much more supportive of unions, of prevailing wages. You know, they had wanted to say that union labor was required as part of the IRA. They weren't actually able to get that done, but still the nature of the legislation has made it easier for them to argue that investment should be going to unionized factories. So Biden, not the most pro-union president in American history, because that probably belongs to FDR, but you would say the most pro-union, you know, maybe in the past 50 years or even in the post-war era. That's right. I mean, so the National Labor Relations Act, the Labor Relations Board, they were formed under Roosevelt. That clearly, in terms of enshrining the right to collective bargaining, you can make the argument, therefore, that FDR is the most pro-union president in American history. That said, of course, the circumstances were very different then. And this kind of historical debate is a little bit silly, but I think it is clear that if you look at it on kind of a multi-decadal basis, you know, you can easily argue that going back to FDR, going back eight decades, Biden really does break the mold in terms of being staunchly pro-union. And the union leaders like to describe what's happening in America at the moment and also you know, over the past few months when there were a lot of strikes 
as being a sort of fundamental shift, right, in the balance of power between workers and managers. Do you think that's what's happening, helped by the Biden administration's policy? Or are we seeing something that's just much more fleeting and a result of the fact that just America has a very, very tight labour market at the moment and has done for a little while now? And so that just fundamentally changes the terms of trade between labour and management or labour and capital. So I think there's a lot of things that feed into it. And just as kind of it's easy to say that he's the most pre-union president when the bar is so low, it's kind of also easy to say that the tide is turning when the tide has been so low for so long. So you look at union membership in America and Roughly 30% of workers were unionized in the 1970s. That's down to 10% now, only 6% in the private sector. So kind of there's nowhere to go but up when you're basically already at the bottom. What union leaders are looking at is that there really has been a flurry of activity in the labor movement, unlike anything that's been seen in the last couple of decades, where you've had a lot more strikes. You know, if the UAW does go on strike, you will have the largest number of private sector workers on the picket line since the mid-1980s. You've had unions being organized somewhat successfully in sectors where they've not previously been before. So specifically Amazon and Starbucks are the ones that have made the biggest headlines. But there have been a lot of big strikes from Hollywood to the public school system to smaller manufacturing companies. So, you know, people like Liz Schuler, the head of the AFL-CIO, the biggest federation of unions in America, talk about this as an awakening of the labor movement in America. But at the same time, you know, as you note, the labor market is incredibly tight. For the past couple of years, the unemployment rate has been around 3.5%, you know, near to a five-decade low. So workers have a lot of bargaining power. They recognize that. So are we seeing an awakening because people think that deunionization has gone too far and they want to have more collective organization? Or are we simply seeing labor benefiting from the fact that workers are in short supply and that translates into higher wage demands and that also translates into somewhat more union activity But kind of as the labor market gets into better balance, it would be reasonable to expect that some of this union movement will peter out. Charlotte, one of the things I found interesting talking to Simon about this subject is that As you heard there, the support for unions from the Biden administration is not just a rhetorical thing, which, you know, it's perhaps an easy thing to say. There's actually been a lot of policy in practice to try and tilt the scales in favor of unions. That's right. You heard Simon list some of them, the changes at the National Labor Relations Board, some of the incentives within these giant laws, which we've discussed on the show in the past, the CHIPS law for semiconductors and the Inflation Reduction Act, which is largely a climate bill. They include all kinds of incentives for companies to employ unionized workers. But it's funny to go back at a statistic that Simon raised of union rates. I mean, in 1970, 30% of the private sector was in unions. Now that's 6%. In the public sector, it's been much higher. It's five times that rate. So cops, firefighters, teachers, those are jobs that are often unionized. But what's been so interesting in the past year or two is both the union action that is organic, not propelled by the Biden administration's changes. So I'm thinking in particular of some of the union drives at Starbucks or at Amazon. I was in Buffalo back in the beginning of 2022 talking with organizers, and I was just so struck by these young Starbucks workers who just had an entirely different conception of what a company owed them. And I think that attitude is reflected in the polling. You have nearly 70% of Americans approving of unions, which is a near six-decade record. But there's a separate question of whether unions themselves are effective. So Starbucks just isn't bargaining with the unions that have formed, they haven't been able to win big concessions. In other instances, unions are effective. So UPS, the UPS union did get that company to agree to lift wages and benefits to $170,000. But I think it's still an open question of whether the gains that workers in unions seek 
will be realized, the Hollywood strike, for instance, drags on, or whether the long-term changes that Joe Biden is trying to seek by boosting union rates across the country will have a substantive impact on the lives of American workers or a ripple effect on the American economy. The administration has been quite bullish on this, putting out reports saying that unions do benefit the broader economy. They create all kinds of benefits, not just for workers, but for the companies for whom they work. But I think it's still very much an open question. Yeah, Idris, I'm sure those arguments from the Biden administration about the economic benefits for all workers of unions, I'm sure those are sincere. It's also true that there would be political benefits for Democrats if more American workers unionized. I mean, you can trace the decline of democratic support among the working class and the decline of union membership, and they kind of go along with each other. And, you know, in the opposite direction, the Democratic Party lost a clear majority of white working class voters in 2020 and did less well with working class voters generally in 2020 than in 2016. But if you look at union households, actually, the Democratic Party still does pretty well, right? Joe Biden won a majority of union households in 2020. It's just that there aren't that many of them. As Charlotte said, you know, 6% of private sector workers are unionized in America. That's not a big enough political base for the Democratic Party within the working class in America. Yeah. And it's 6% among the private sector, and it's about 33% among the public sector. So I think that part of the seeming strength of Democrats in union households is driven by the fact that the unionization rates are really, really high among public sector employees, of which teachers constitute a big chunk. And so I think that's what's driving it there. You do see an erosion of support, and I think we're going to talk about this later, among white working class voters, which is why you see even among police unions, a pretty stark kind of Republican Trumpy shift. So I think that Yes, in theory, unionization would benefit Democrats, but I think that there is, and sometimes you see this with Biden's speeches, a kind of nostalgia for the good old days of the 1960s when all of these things were simple and kind of interlocked together neatly, such that wages increased and Democratic support increased. And I don't think that we are in that world. I think, you know, America tends to think about the decline of unionization over the last 40 or 50 years as a unique phenomenon. And it's not really, if you look at most advanced countries in the OECD, unionization rates have been dropping everywhere for private sector employees for the last few decades. What's driving the decline of unionization is a kind of global phenomenon in which advanced countries build fewer things domestically. Many more workers are engaged in services, which are generally more highly compensated and don't require unions. There's no union of Goldman Sachs bankers and no union of mergers and acquisitions lawyers. But I think that we sometimes, you know, assume that unionized workers are kind of the vanguard of labor, that they represent the working people of the country. And that's a narrative that they're obviously incredibly keen to put forward. And maybe we can talk about this a bit later. But I think that, you know, you have to think about unions as a self-interested collective, and that self-interest might have positive externalities, but I think ultimately it is a self-interested collective. I agree with that. And one thing about the polling that I find really interesting, Gallup did some polling on unions recently, is that there's all the support, as I said earlier, for unions right now. There's a near record high. And in more specific questions in which a pollster will ask someone in a given labor standoff, like the Hollywood strike, who does an uninterested party favor. They favor the workers. They don't favor the Hollywood studios and the UAW negotiations by a large share. They favor the workers over the company. And polling also suggests that a growing share of Americans think that unions are good for the economy. And I was struck by the data that 47 percent of Republicans even like unions. But then if you go back, when did union support really take a nosedive? It was after the Great Recession when there was record low support of 48 percent. And the reason why is it was in the wake of the auto bailout when the perception was that unions were good for their own workers but were bad for car makers and therefore for the American economy writ large. And it took almost a decade for support for unions to recover to its prior level after the auto bailout and after the Great Recession. So I think that kind of points to some of the tension here where I think Americans broadly are really supportive of unions in abstract 
And what's so interesting now about Biden's strategy is he's really doubled down on this idea that unions are a key way to win back the working class vote. And I think that will be put to the test this year. Okay, let's pause there for now. We'll go back to one of the great what-ifs of American political history in a moment. But before we do that, Charlotte, let's talk a little bit more about why we're making this move to podcast subscriptions. It's something that you and I have both been working on behind the scenes for a little while now. Yeah. So John and I, in our day jobs, when we're not doing quizzes, have been working with our commercial colleagues on this. And we're excited because we think podcasts are an important form of The Economist journalism. And we're proud of what we do, and we want to support ambitious plans going forward. And you think about series like The Prince on Xi Jinping, which, in my view, is the best way to understand the world's most powerful man, or Next Year in Moscow, which is an incredibly powerful series on Russia in the wake of the invasion of Ukraine. And The Economist has always helped readers understand how the world is changing in real time. And with podcasts, you get to hear directly from our correspondents and their sources all around the world. And we think that has real value and we want to do more of it. And for half off, a subscription to Podcast Plus is about $2 a month. I spend that on chocolate daily. It's worth it. And you can listen on any platform. So we hope you sign up. Yes. And if you're already a subscriber, you don't even need to spend that money because your podcast subscription will be included with your regular subscription. If you're not, then from mid-October to carry on listening to Checks and to all our other podcasts, then you'll need Economist Podcast Plus. You can join by going to economist.com slash podcasts plus, or you can just click on the link you'll find in the show notes. very sad news for all of you, and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis. Robert F. Kennedy was campaigning in Indiana when news broke of Martin Luther King's assassination. Some people had come prepared to riot, I mean, carrying Molotov cocktails and other weapons into the crowd. James Bennett is The Economist's Lexington columnist. And Kennedy... It's just one of these moments where he somehow pulled out of himself these just astonishingly beautiful (laughs) remarks about this unbelievably terrible news. Kennedy quelled the Indianapolis crowd, at one point quoting the Greek poet Aeschylus. Even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair, against our will, comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. There was no riot in Indianapolis that night. There were riots across America and American cities, but what Kennedy said really moved the crowd. And it's just one of these moments in American history when one of our politicians has really risen to the obligations of leadership. It was one of the crowning moments of Kennedy's blazing, short and tragic campaign for the Democratic nomination. He only entered the race to challenge the sitting Democrat president, Lyndon Johnson, that March. Minnesota Senator Eugene McCarthy had already locked up the affluent, educated, anti-Vietnam War vote. Kennedy had to try a different route. James Bennett again. His message was, you know, really a populist message. It was very much aimed at trying to bring together black voters and white working class voters. And there was succeeding with it. Kennedy's support base of black voters and working class white Democrats resembled the New Deal coalition that had propelled FDR to four terms, but been fractured by Vietnam and the civil rights movement. The Indiana primary in May was a big test. Kennedy, with really not much empirical evidence that this strategy could succeed, 
attempted to go into Indiana and stitch together these seemingly different constituencies with, again, a unifying message of economic uplift. He had been the attorney general, and he ran very strongly as a law and order candidate using those terms, which are then as now were seen as kind of racist code. But he really was deeply concerned about racial injustice, very focused on it. And whenever he talked about law and order, he talked about racial injustice. Kennedy's populist message won him Indiana. He lost in affluent Oregon, but captured Nebraska and South Dakota. I think he believed or saw, I think rightly, that among these the same group voters, whether they were black or white, was a feeling that the federal government had become this vast, distant force that was addressing local problems with these huge kind of faceless programs. He believed deeply in the dignity of work. He was not a fan of welfare. And what he was pushing for were kind of public-private partnerships that would create jobs in communities that had been losing them. And this message also really resonated at the time. Then he went to Los Angeles. Tuesday night was a particularly joyous night. Robert Francis Kennedy was 42 years old and had just won the victory of his political life in the California presidential primary. My thanks to all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Senator Kennedy was a very happy man as he made his way out of the crowd into the hotel kitchen, into the range of a young, swarthy assailant. The senator was hit by two bullets. Five other persons were also wounded as bullets sprayed. Kennedy was not yet assured the presidency or even the nomination. But it's tantalizing to ponder what America would be like today if he had not been fatally shot that night especially for those Democrats fretting over the party's dire standing with the working class. This is the sort of the great poignant what if of Bobby Kennedy's run. If, if he had lived, if he had become president, Richard Nixon would not have been elected. The Southern strategy that Nixon used so effectively to get himself elected and that really contributed to profound racial division in the country and would not have become such a central feature of our politics. And the Democrats, I think, would have oriented themselves around a multiracial kind of working class message of hope and uplift. In the 82 days of his campaign, Kennedy crafted a winning populist appeal. If Democrats want to get working class voters back, they would do well to study it. Idris, RFK, had he lived and had he won the nomination and run in that presidential election, the voters he would have been appealing to would still, in some senses, have been the old Democratic New Deal coalition. Now, if you look at Democratic support, it's very, very different. The party is no longer the working class party. Republicans win a majority of working class voters and are doing particularly well with white working class voters, but making some inroads with non-white working class voters as well. And the Democratic Party, which used to do pretty badly among college-educated voters, does fantastically well with that group now. So if you step back a bit and take the long view, what are your thoughts on how and why that happened? Well, definitely civil rights was a realigning moment in American politics in which the previously Democratic South slowly eroded its gains to the Republican right. The parties as a whole started to become a lot more polarized than you had Rockefeller Republicans who were appealing to highly educated Americans. But what happens when you advance the decades is the same thing that happened in quite a lot of countries, which is that the highly educated groups navigate towards the left party. And this is true in America, but also in the UK and in France, among many other places, whereas the right has become increasingly attractive to people who don't have college degrees. It's not necessarily an income thing. There are quite rich Republicans, there are quite poor Democrats, but the educational trends are pretty stark. And they diverge relatively quickly. So I was looking at some data from 
Pew. And it's interesting that in 2012, which wasn't that long ago, Republicans and Democrats had basically identical educational compositions. So 34% of registered voters for the GOP had college degrees, and that's compared to 36% of Democrats. And now those gaps, if you were to calculate them, are really, really large on the order of 15 percentage points or something like that. So what's happened is in part the result of these historical trends, but also there was a a more recent kind of snapping and, and divergence. Charlotte, RFK's theory about American politics in the late 60s was that there was too much emphasis on race and not enough on class, and that emphasizing race essentially got in the way of building the kind of broad working class movement that he wanted to help create and and thought could make for a winning coalition in presidential politics. There are still quite a lot of people who make that argument now. Do you think they're right? I think the obvious but important point is that voters don't fall in perfect categories and they don't vote solely on one issue. So the most obvious example of this is you think about if voters were to go to the polls and vote for a candidate purely on their economic interests, a working-class voter might presumably vote for a Democrat. But, of course, a policy that Democrats hold in one area might conflict with their economic interests in reality. So you had the example of UAW workers who are very wary of a shift to EVs. Certainly fossil fuel workers would be wary of a, of increased investment in renewable energy as well. But then, of course, working class voters don't vote only on economic issues. You've seen that for decades, right? It's not a new thing, whether it's on abortion rights or gun rights or increasingly questions of cultural elitism, which I think is some of the most interesting stuff, the backlash against coastal elites and companies, ESG practices, and you saw DeSantis Back when he was doing well, it was was in part based on taking on uh, woke Disney, right? And so I think that you have something interesting happening within the party where, as Idris has articulated, really a large share of voters who have advanced degrees are extremely reliable Democrats. And the question is whether and how Democrats should start to court those without degrees And there was a series of books that came out. There was What It Took to Win by Michael Kazin. There was Left Behind by Lily Geismer, who argued that labor was really the glue that was going to stick the Democratic Party back together, that was going to bring these working class voters back to the fold. And that's clearly the bet that Biden has made. Okay, let's pause there. We're going to be back in a moment to hear from somebody who I think is one of the smartest analysts around of the Democratic Party's dilemma here. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Top of our wish list of people to speak to about the Democratic Party and working class voters is Reid Teixeira. He's a political scientist and commentator now at the right-leaning American Enterprise Institute, though he's very much a man of the left. He's also written a book with John Judis on Democrats and the working class, which is going to come out later this year. And he's somebody who thinks a lot about these issues. If we define working class voters by non-college, which is the standard at this point, the Democrats have basically lost altitude among this broad demographic for a number of cycles. And the latest data that's coming out from the pre-election polls shows that falling even further. For example, in the latest CNN poll, which showed Trump ahead by a point, he's ahead among working class voters by 14 points. That compares to four points, according to the best data from the 2020 election. So, you know, it's just a poll. We don't know how things are going to turn out in the actual election, but the slippage is clearly there. In this poll, Biden was behind by 33 points among white 
non-college voters, white working class voters, which is worse than 2020. They don't give non-white voters, but based on the other data, I'm pretty sure he's behind relative to 2020 there as well. So if you compare 2012 to 2020, okay, with these are elections, the Democrats nationally won the popular vote by about the same margin. The Democratic margin among non-white working class voters declined by 19 points. There's a long-running argument within the Democratic Party that's been going on, I think, at least since the 1960s, between progressives, on the one hand, who say that the way for Democrats to win and to do better with working-class voters is to move left, particularly on economic policy, but also on some other questions, and centrists in the party who say, no, that's a disaster, the Democratic Party will lose by that. doing that. The answer is to be more moderate on economic policy and also on some cultural and you know, values questions. And it sounds like your prescription for the party is a blend of the two. You think the Democratic Party needs to move left on economics and move right on cultural questions and also move right on its position on how to handle climate change. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. One piece I wrote in The Liberal Patriot was a three-point plan to fix a democratic coalition. The first part was move to the center on cultural issues. The second part is promote an abundance agenda. And the third part is embrace patriotism and liberal nationalism. So the second part of that about promoting an abundance agenda is certainly not a recommendation to just purely move to the right on economic issues. In some ways, it's to move to the left, but to emphasize the class parts of the democratic program and to emphasize how Democrats and what they stand for are going to actually make your life better in a concrete kind of way. And we're going to deliver more material benefits, not less. And sort of intrinsically, that moves you away from a climate-focused agenda, which is really, I think, you know, a centerpiece, let's face it, of the way Democrats are approaching economic policy today, that a lot is unfolding around this idea of a green transition, which working class people have relatively little interest in and are, and are not at all clear <laughs> that this transition is going to make their lives better. So if you're going to have an abundance agenda, I'd say you moved away from that. I would say you, you do more. I mean, this is not traditionally considered a left-wing position, but do a lot more with permitting and regulatory reform. So it's just easier to build stuff and do stuff in the United States. As, you know, the Democrats arguably would get points for moving away from sort of a neoliberal emphasis on simply letting the market take its course and being willing to invest, as it were, in uh, things that might make the country better over the longer haul. And they're certainly somewhat supportive of safety net programs. But, you know, just because you're willing to spend money <laughs> doesn't mean you'll spend it on the right things. And it doesn't mean you'll spend it in such a way that working class people actually feel they're going to benefit from it. And I think that's that's really become a problem. And I think that the idea Democrats have cracked the case just because they're basically spent a boatload of money, I think is just incorrect. And I think it's just not playing that well with working class voters. An argument you'll sometimes get, and it's not an argument that people say out loud, but it's implied, and I think it's not said out loud because it's an elitist argument, is that the reason Republicans are doing so much better with the working class, with working class voters, that's based on policy positions like being horrid to immigrants or giving up on trying to do something about the effects of climate change, perhaps not even acknowledging that climate change exists, and that Democrats can't or won't go there, and nor should they. So that the loss of support among working class voters is in some senses an inevitable penalty for doing the right thing, a bit like the penalty that LBJ suffered after signing the Civil Rights Act. So the implication there is that while the Democrats' loss of support among working class voters is regrettable, it's also sort of virtuous. What do you make of that argument? I think that is, at least unconsciously, sometimes consciously, the argument of a lot of Democrats. We cannot compromise on these issues. They are moral imperatives. We must save the planet. We must be kind to immigrants. We must combat racism. And there's no alternative other than what we're already doing. I think that's complete baloney. I mean, if you look at why people are concerned about what's going on in the border, it's because it's a real problem. It's because it is a pretty open border. The asylum system is broken. It's crazy that 
that New York City has 100,000 immigrants that they've got to house and spend money on. I mean, this is a broken system. You know, why would we think that because people think that relatively unregulated immigration is a problem, that therefore they just all hate immigrants? I think that is incorrect. I think if you look at people's concerns about some of these climate-related issues, you know, how quick is the transition to electric vehicles going to be? Do people really want an electric vehicle right now? Should we really be talking about promulgating regulations that could make it difficult for people to afford an internal combustion engine car? I mean, if people have qualms about this, that is not an indication they don't believe in climate change. It's an indication that the policies that are being pursued and the priority being put on them is not necessarily convincing to these voters for some pretty good reasons. Rui, looking forward to the next presidential election in 24, is there a scenario where Joe Biden loses a few points of working class voters relative to 2020 and still gets elected? Or is it the case that he has to at least maintain or maybe even do a bit better among working class voters than he did last time around? Because I suppose one response among Democrats would be to take what you say on board and try to make an effort to win working class voters back. And another is a more fatalistic one that just says, well, you know, our party base has changed, but we can still win with a new base. Yeah, well, I think mathematically, it's the case that Democrats can certainly lose a few more points off of their working class support. And, you know, by increasing support among the rest of the electorate, they could compensate for that and, and win the election. I mean, one problem with that that I've emphasized is that there are just a lot more working class voters than there are college educated voters. So for every couple of points you lose among working class voters, you got to get three or four points among college educated voters. So it's not an easy trade, though it is a trade that can be made. Charlotte Rui is a fascinating guy and I think a very, very good analyst of American politics. I was particularly interested in what he had to say about how Democrats talk about their climate change policy and whether that ought to be reframed as an abundance agenda. What did you make of that and what did you make of what he had to say more generally? I was fascinated by that as well. And I do completely buy his argument that you can recognize that there's a problem without being supportive of a specific policy to fix that problem. I don't think that it's correct that there should be less of a policy priority placed on climate change. I strongly think there should be more, even beyond what the Inflation Reduction Act has done, to accelerate the shift away from fossil fuels whether that's the foundation of a political messaging campaign is something distinct. But I think that coming up with smart policies to really effectively deal with some of the trade-offs that he highlighted around affordability for uh, electric car is one example, but there are many, many others that are involved in transitioning an economy dependent on fossil fuels very rapidly to one that isn't. That's a really big, really hard question that requires real attention and more attention. So that is my view. The question of how that plays into a political campaign is a really interesting one and how much Democrats want to talk about it. I kind of take his point, but I don't actually think that the policy itself should be deprioritized. On other issues like immigration, you know, I agree in the reckoning that we've had here in New York on the asylum crisis where you have Democratic local politicians the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, writing to Biden asking for more assistance is a really interesting illumination of this, where you have those who have to deal with a huge challenge on a day-to-day -day basis, really imploring the government to do more. And I think that highlights that Democrats can't sit by, and I think the Biden administration knows this, right? They can't sit by and leave this problem unaddressed. And so I both agree generally with his analysis while taking some issue with specific points in it. I think that the shift that he has identified among white, non-college educated voters is pretty stark, but also his writing has been among the best chronicling the shift among Hispanic and Black voters who are moving away from the Democratic Party, many of whom also don't have a college degree. And I think he's been incredibly observant of that trend, and he's documented it and examine why exactly that happens. So I think that that'll continue. 
basically because of these cultural issues. And I think climate has become, in slight defense of him, I think what he's saying is that the green agenda has become culturally identified in a way that can be a hindrance to its wider acceptance. And I think that there are distinctions between policies that make a difference and that tend to be a bit boring, like solar wind subsidies, these sorts of things, carbon capture subsidies, funding for advanced nuclear reactor studies, all the things that will matter. And then, you know, there's this incredible amount of energy spent on these sorts of stupid climate debates, like whether or not we should have gas stoves, or we all need to move to induction stoves, or like the plastic straws. And these these things, even though they like don't really matter in aggregate terms of decreasing carbon emissions, they occupy this kind of incredible amount of mental energy, at least for the typical voter. And I think Democrats are sometimes a little bit easy to bait in addressing some of these issues and maybe a little bit less keen on focusing on the policy stuff, which is important. I don't think that it'll move dramatically many votes. And the fact that the UAW is EV skeptical is, I think, an interesting thing to probe. Democrats and you know good progressive people sometimes have this, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but they have this slightly Leninist vanguard view of unions, that they're the kind of embodiment of the working class, that they kind of stand up for good progressive values. And those things, I, I think reality is a different story. Different priorities can be intention. We see that with the green agenda. So I think that there is this interesting tension within the left and the union stuff is more complicated than maybe people let on. Yeah, on that, I want to return to the discussion of non-white working class voters because I was looking at the figures and it was just astonishing to me. So Biden leads among that group by 16 points compared with Trump at the moment. And that sounds impressive only if you forget that he won that group, non-white working class voters, by 48 points, so three times as much in 2020. And Obama had a 67-point lead in 2012. So it is really astonishing, this erosion of support within this group is something that the Democrats have to work really, really hard to do. And one of the things that I'm most interested in watching, assuming that Biden does become the nominee, is this question of messaging. So when you have a candidate that you know is not going to be his best spokesman, how do you deal with that as an issue? What is the way that the Biden administration is going to come out and try to have the type of compelling narrative that RFK was able to craft? How are they going to take these wonky accomplishments and try to put them in terms that make the average voter feel like the Biden administration has done something for them? It's an uphill battle given that the main challenge for them is one of communication and their main candidate is not a communicator. I think this question of how the Democratic Party can win back more working class voters is so fascinating because it goes to really fundamental question about politics, which is how much are you prepared to compromise on your values in order to win power? Because if you don't compromise at all, sometimes you can't win power, and then you have zero chance of implementing your program. If you compromise too much, then what's the point of winning power in the first place? I think what Rui is trying to do is to say to Democratic Party activists and decision makers, look, Exercising power in America is really hard. The nation is split 50-50. All the things that the party wants to do require large majorities of the type that American politics no longer delivers. When a party wins a presidential election these days, it's by a few percentage points that normally translates into a majority, a narrow majority in the House of Representatives. But to make real change, you need 60 in the Senate. And to do that, you need a huge coalition. You can't be winning presidential elections by a few points. You need to win by 10 points, 20 points more. And to do that, the Democratic Party needs not only to do well with college voters, which it does at the moment, and you know every election seems to increase that margin, but also to win a healthy chunk of non-college voters, a much bigger chunk than the party has in recent elections. And his point is that the college-educated activist class of the Democratic Party and the pool from which Democrats draw most of their candidates these days just have very different attitudes on some pretty fundamental questions about America to working class voters. And so, though I think quite a lot of people might take his analysis on board, actually moving in the direction he recommends is really, really hard. This is a question I'm sure we'll come back to again over the course of the next year. Let's leave it there for now. Before I let you guys go, I have a quiz. Question one, 
One of the first unions established in the US was the Federal Society of Journeymen Cordwainers, which started in Philadelphia in 1894. What did Cordwainers make? Hmm. I like that question very much. I have no idea. But um, I think something that went on a ship, but I don't know what on that ship. I'm just going with the nautical theme. I think that's a good answer, given that almost anything could go on a ship. I think you've really covered yourself there. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was thinking maybe telegraph wire or something. Something along those lines. Yeah, that's a good guess. Oh, you're both wrong, I'm afraid. They were shoemakers. Cordwainer, the word, is derived mm. from the old French word cordouin and the Spanish city Cordova, which was famous for its leather. Lots of people made shoes there. Question two. The Teamsters Union is America's biggest private sector union. Which legendary American singer was once a member of the Teamsters? Uh, Bruce Springsteen? That's a good guess. Um, I don't know. Johnny Cash? That was my second guess. Someone all-American. All <laughs> Both good guesses. The answer is Elvis Presley, who, before he was famous, he drove a truck for a power company in Memphis and was a member of the Teamsters. Very good. Good to know. All right, nil-nil. It's a triumph for me. A particularly tricky one to see you up to Tokyo. Proper, proper English respectable football match score. Yeah, exactly. And nil-nil can be pretty dramatic and exciting. Don't knock it. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thanks. Idris, have a great time in Japan. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. A reminder that from the middle of next month, to carry on listening to all the episodes of Checks and Balance, if you don't already subscribe to The Economist, you'll need to sign up for our new podcast subscription, Economist Podcasts Plus. To do this and to take advantage of a special half-price limited offer, go to economist.com slash podcasts plus. If you have any questions about this, why we're doing it, what it means for Checks and Balance and all our other podcasts, Whatever else you want to know, please email podcasts at economist.com and put checks in the subject line. We'll answer some of those questions about Economist Podcasts Plus next week. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. <laughs>